This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a film criticism show and podcast on RRR. I'm your host, Paul Anthony Easy Rider Nelson. (laughs) And in the uh, studio with us tonight, uh, we have, uh, hello Dolly, Sally Christie. Hello. (laughs) And this week we are joined again by True Grit. (laughs) Flick forward. I already knew it was going to be me as well, so she just said True Grit, but I got it. (laughs) And lastly, Midnight Cowboy, Cerise Howard. (laughs) X-rated. It's fair and just. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I worked hard on those. Um, As we've spent the last three shows preoccupied with the Melbourne International Film Festival and Triple R Radiothon, and mentioning Triple R Radiothon, if you didn't get to subscribe by the uh, the end of Radiothon yesterday, you can still subscribe by the end of the Triple R Radiothon pay-up period, the 25th of September, and still be in the running to win major prizes. But because we'd concentrated on MIF and Radiothon in the last three weeks, we thought on tonight's show we'd catch up on a couple of major releases that came out during that time. So firstly, we'll travel back in time to the California Dream Factory of 1969 for Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And uh, those nicknames I gave you earlier were all famous films from 1969. Um, See, just, you know, uh, Easter eggs everywhere. Uh, (laughs) Later on, we'll head to a commune in rural Sweden for Midsommar. And in between, we'll fly on seraphic wings over 1980s Westburn to check out our retro title for this Vim Vendors. But first, let's go back to a time when an old Hollywood was dying and a new Hollywood was rising. Rick Dalton, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, is a former TV star who won America over with his hit Western TV show Bounty Law, but quit at the height of its fame to pursue a big-time movie career that hasn't really... When we meet him in early 1969, he's become a special guest villain of the week on other people, and dreading the thought of having to resort to shooting a spaghetti Western... By Rick side as his loyal best friend, driver, and longtime stunt double, Cliff Booth, played by Brad Pitt, who hasn't had a movie gig himself for a while, but is just happy to hang out with his gorgeous attack dog, Brandy, play the Zen Sundance to Rick's flaky Butch Cassidy, and, watch to wo- and just watch the world. But the world he's watching is rapidly changing. Personified by forces of light in Rick's new next-door neighbour, uh, the rising star Sharon Tate, played by Margot Robbie, and her husband, Rosemary's baby director, Ben Polanski, and Darkness the aimless young cadre of hippies known as The Family, hitching rides up and down Ventura Boulevard to their commune in Spahn's movie ranch, led by a barely glimpsed Charles Manson, played by Damon Herriman. As the town and business around them changes, we follow Rick, Cliff and Sharon over two days in February of 1969, then the fateful date on, of August 9th, 19th, August 9th, night, the night when the Manson family committed their spate. Of, but this being a Tarantino joint, who knows how it's going. Sally... If we were to grade by 1969 movie titles, did you find Tarantino's fairy tale memory vision of a bygone Hollywood an easy rider or a sterile cook? Uh, <laughs> I don't know which. No, it was. I, I definitely really did get a kick out of once. Um, there is a lot to be said, I think, for the way that Tarantusas has an ability to use younger or to oldest, and we see that happen here. Um, yeah, there's a of hullabaloo. There has been a lot of hullabaloo, hullabaloo around this in the movie and outside of the movie. But I do – one of the things I think that maybe I will address talking about this, I guess there's been a lot of talk about Margot Robbie's Sharon Tate and the lack of her presence in this film. Um, I, 
I don't think it does um, that it's getting around that. I feel that she is definitely a representation of something like actual Sharon Tate is a representative of pop culture. Uh, Margot Robbie does an excellent job playing her. And I think even though she's minimal, her presence has probably felt the most. Uh, and I, like I did, I found it really enjoyable. My only sort of is it felt like... If you didn't have a lot of knowledge of that time of the Manson murders that you might be a story that you might be able to make. Um, I didn't have that problem. I could kind of pick it all up. But that was sort of my only comment is that it. Flew. Um <laughs> Well, I'll start with my list of what I Because that. <laughs> um, I'm going to maybe upset you a little here by saying. I did like, well, I'll start with what I liked. So firstly, I love the fact that it's got this really languid pace. Leonardo DiCaprio is just amazing. Like his character is fantastic. I was so into that sort of divide between on-screen much and this like really kind of vulnerable uh, off-screen insight that you get. Uh, I did find it really frustrating that uh, Margot Robbie is just underused. I think she's such a good actor. I think and it's, it was... that's very intentional, though. <laughs> like, very, very intentional. Uh, yeah, I just yeah. think it's problematic. You have these you have these two male leads, and then and the three of them are featured on the poster, and then she gets hardly a of dialogue. And it just, it really got to me. And I think the main the main scene that kind of stood out that I remember as a real turning point for me is the Bruce Lee scene, which there's been a lot of conversation about in relation. Uh, Lee's daughter has come out, um, has talked about being extremely upset about the representative of her father. And I thought that it did actually tie into sort of a long racist tradition of characterising Asian men feminised and this idea of like Brad Pitt's character as this small man. And I just felt so uncomfortable in the film in those moments. And the few women who are in there, well, I mean, there's a lot of women in the film, sorry, I should clarify that, but the women that are in there are usually either these sort of beautiful but voiceless women, you know, I already mentioned Robbie, but also Dalton's wife later on isn't even uh, translated when she's speaking in Italian and she's sort of hysterical as there's a home invasion. Um, They're either hysterical or brainwashed or they're these kind of like shrieking nags kind of justify um, sub subplot that's never really developed about whether or not a murder done. So I, I don't know. I had a lot of issues with it. Um, yeah, there was. <laughs> sorry, I'm losing my my notes here. But I think I just I have always enjoyed Tarantino's um, iconic imagery. And I think there's like really amazing scenes in this film. So I'm not kind of writing it off completely. But ultimately, I found the violence just seemed to justify a very white, straight male perspective and I found it really frustrating the way in which the delight, particularly in one scene at the very end, reminded me a lot of The Hateful Eight and the way in which Jennifer Jason Lee's character in that film, her her torture scene was so much more celebrated than all of the other characters and I felt that way very much at once. Having said that, the frozen margarita scene with Leonardo DiCaprio is one of my favourite little bits in cinema, but overall I was actually pretty <laughs> angry about this film and very very kind of disappointed. I feel like it's just continuing a bit of a conservative white male perspective and especially with the inclusion of Polanski that you know Tarantino before and made some very controversial comments about... Um, uh, sexual assault that plants a 13-year-old girl. So I, I, I have my reservations. There's a really weird moment in the film where I'm not sure who the actor is playing Steve McQueen at a party at the Playboy Mansion, but McQueen casually mentions, oh, how can any of us stand a chance with the likes of Sharon Tate when they're just interested in someone who looks like a 12-year-old boy? And that just gave me a little shiver, referring to Polanski in that mm. case, just actually infantilising him, which is so loaded given that what we know Polanski perpetrated 
uh, some years later. It was a really weird moment. It, there was uh, another piece of dialogue there regarding Polanski, you know, very loaded as well, which was mm. basically just saying, uh, just wait, um, just hanging around with Sharon Tate because surely going to fuck things. Yeah, that's basically. right. Yeah. 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 I, I have a whole lot of mixed feelings about this film. I enjoyed a, a I enjoyed its languor, actually. It was. It, it really did take its sweet time. Uh, yes, there is a very white, heteronormative gaze, and yet at the same time the two leads are quite asexual. Yeah. It's really weird how, how asexual Leo and Brad Pitt are in this film, their characters. They've got a lovely bromance, the pair of them, but they don't seem interested in anybody else. Um, it's just quite curious. Mm, uh, even when that wife is kind of almost an obstacle to well, fact, really? an obstacle yeah. to the Yeah. Well, she's there is just bizarre comic relief. She's such an odd, mm. odd, odd um, addition to the film's dramatis personae. Um, the whole Italian thing, though, I quite enjoyed this whole dread that uh, Leo's character has about getting involved in spaghetti westerns, which did have a dreadful reputation at that time. It was a, it was a while before critics... And I mean, the public warmed them soon enough, but critics really took a long time to even acknowledge Leone as a, a great director, let alone Sergio Cabucci, who gets credited here, actually probably rightly, as being the number two <laughs> director of Spaghetti Westerns. And I like that all of the Italian directors name-checked in this film are, you know, they have bona fides. No, they didn't make films of Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Rick Dalton, no such character existed, <laughs> but these people were real. Antonio Margariti was very much a real filmmaker. And they made films with analogues of Rick, like people who Tarantino was partly based on. Yeah. yeah. Like Ed Burns, like that. Yeah, and Tarantino's been there before. Inglorious Bastards is a name taken from an Italian film with a not dissimilar plot as well. I mean, we know he's a vulture. He just picks apart genre cinema of yesteryears and of other nations, other cultures. Um, and that's always reflected, usually to great advantage, in his soundtracks. Man still knows how to put together a killer yeah. soundtrack. Um, but I, I struggled throughout with the fact that there are some known events that are integral to not just so much that people understand this film. As you mentioned, Sally, people might not get what's going on if they come to this film with no knowledge of the Manson family murders and so on. But I actually just struggle with using that. Um, I, I struggle with the ethics of using that as um, as something to, around which to set up a fictional universe i mean it's not fictional but it is fictional i don't want to go into i don't want to expand on that too greatly but i think there's a lot there that is uh it's really tricky yeah i'm trying not to say problematic because that word's problematic. It is problematic, <laughs> but, it? but i found that this film had some unusual ethical dimensions to it um there's often some unusual ethical dimensions in Tarantino cinema, but this is really quite odd because the, the events that are known to those of us who are steeped in Hollywood mythology are very well known and are appalling. Mm. Um, and a certain expectation is um, uh, you know, we come into this film thinking, okay, Tarantino is going to show us some stuff and it's not going to be pretty and we're going to have to um, come to that at some point. That's surely where the film is heading. And I, I, I feel uneasy about that being used as entertainment. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it, oh, clearly he's not the first person to have done that, but um, this is the first Tarantino movie that tugged at my heartstrings a little bit, to be honest. The very, I'm not going to, I won't go into it. And complex. The, the very mm. end end scene Nearly made me cry. Well, <laughs> you know, the, the like title reveal did make me cry. Yeah. And it's the first time since that 
um, probably since the end of Jackie Brown that yeah. that's happened. Um, it actually happened twice in this one. The, the, the scene, the line that's mentioned at the end of the, yep. that delivery, like that, what that follows and everything in that film, that, that moved me as well. I have, yeah, I, I understand all of this. I don't have such misgivings. I adore this film. I've seen it twice now. And uh, look, I'm, I'm in the bag for Tarantino. I, I, I you know, I've long said I, I saw Reservoir Dogs in Day and been an acolyte. He's one of the remake of that. But I think there's so much love in this film. And I feel like there's such an affection for the time and for old and new Hollywood and for these characters. And, you know, like it's, you know, and I, I with you, 100% agree uh, with, uh, I love the, you know, little, little, uh, little grace notes to the performance, like the stutter. And things like that. Just this sort of, you know, he's this tough guy on this screen and this sensitive kind of, you know, slightly flaky actor in, you know. And the stutter gives you a hint of, like, you know, the the, the little southern kid who wanted to come to Holland and be a, you know, be a cowboy. You know, it's just, I think all of that character is so finely etched and he's so funny. As Again, the frozen margarita scene is just amazing. <laughs> and you also, like, it's a real showcase of DiCaprio because there's that scene within it where he's acting a scene which is played as a real movie within the movie yes and then he cuts back to DiCaprio as Rick Dalton and it's just I don't know I just it's really made me think you know I've always thought DiCaprio is amazing but if I that yeah he's really terrific in the film I think yeah I I love Brad Pitt's performance it's just it's pure I mean the guy is I like that the guy's a bit like you know like he, we, we like him because Rick like and he's good to Rick and everything but it's like he's kind of an asshole at times and that's I like those sort of shades in a character I think I, it's interesting because the whole thing with Sharon Tate is that Tarantino has said he didn't want to write her as a Quentin Tarantino character. He didn't want to put mouth. He wanted to kind of liberate her from her tombstone. And so and it's, and it's one of the reasons why he doesn't make the choice to replace Sharon Tate in the Wrecking Crew, the movie that um, Sharon Tate, the character, is what, you know, in Sharon Tate in the film is what on screen. He chose not to replace the CGI Margot Robbie's face under hers. Um, he wanted audiences to see the real Sharon Tate. And wanted, you know, and wanted to just follow Sharon around living her life. Um, and she spends a lot of the film alone because, I mean, at this point, Roman Polanski's overseas making a film in London. She was quite lonely at the time. And it's sort of that thing of, of following her around and and seeing her live her life, which is what she... And I actually really like that as a choice. And Margot Robbie is such a beautiful fourth light in this film. It's it's really quite something. And, and that's the thing. And that ending lands because... Of, and it, I think it just proves... Uh, fantastic um i just yeah I, I loved everything about this i love the detail i love i just i just want to swim in this film in this world um i think using them i i think the using the manson thing is as uh, it's, it, it's it's funny because i don't think i feel like it's more a marketing department decision to use that as a hook yeah i feel like it's part of the fabric of the time and part of what he's trying to say about the also time. if we're he, it's a film essentially about change and um yes you know people clinging on to things and we often do associate the manson killings with the this was the end of this era this was the thing that ended it's the full stop yeah, that yeah. was it so i can understand the logic in using them there um, I do definitely think it is marketing just to some point too. Yeah. But if we're looking at the way that Hollywood changed then, then I think that is a really vital part of it. Well, it's the thing. You can't get around it. Mm. Like, you, you can't get around that moment of, like, this is when the summer of love and the old, you know, this is the dream, everything ends. The new Hollywood begins. A lot of downbeat narrative, a lot of darkness. Um, I actually really like the Bruce Lee scene. And I feel like Tarantino has always been a, a huge fan of Bruce Lee. And I think... What is commonly misunderstood about that scene is the fact that it's a it's a character beat, 
people said, oh, it's an opportunity to watch, you know, Bruce, um, Brad Pitt beat up on Bruce Lee. No, no, it's showing that Cliff Booth can do things other people can't. And then that's, it, it's, it shows that he's not just some goober. Like, there's something about this guy that comes into play later and then, so but I'm hard to that, say without spoilers. Wasn't that, though, wasn't that also demonstrated, though, in other scenes that, so they didn't, like, but, for but, instance, he goes to, like, fi- the uh, the favourite scene of, my favourite scene of his character is when uh, he goes to fix the aerial and it's like he does that sort of parkour, <laughs> yeah, <that's> <laughs> parkour to get onto the roof and it's just so casual. He's not getting watched anyway. It's just, he's literally like, that's the easiest way for him as a stuntman to get up on the roof yeah um and i loved the i mean one of my friends had messaged me before seeing this i'm saying by the way brad pitt's really hot in the check it out <laughs> and it's interesting because it's like brad there's a scene in which brad pitt's got his shirt off and he's seeing up the aerial on the roof and it's so iconic to, it reminded me so much of his performance in um thelma and louise where he's just mm. put as this poster boy pretty boy post, poster <laughs> is that the right phrase anyway you get what i mean and I thought that that was really interesting that they had that there. Like it's another little bit of Easter egg of sorts of just like the iconography of Pitt yes. in that role. But I just, I still, I don't I, feel comfortable about that scene. Because I was, I was enraptured by the speech that Bruce Lee was giving. Like I think for a moment there, he does become a Quentin Tarantino character and his speech is kind of awesome. Um, and I think the whole little man thing, I mean, it's funny. It's like the little man thing and, and the bit you mentioned earlier, Cerise, about McQueen referring to, you know, Sharon liking boys that look like they're 12. As a short man, this is the sort of stuff I've copped my entire <laughs> life. So this does not feel out of character or like a Polanski reference. Like, yeah, that's how people refer to short dude. Um, so Sharon Tate magnets. <laughs> I know, right? I might have stood a chance in 1969. Um, but this is, um, you know, and I and that's part of, again, and it's part of the and I think Cliff has very much played like a bit of a dick in that scene, like referring to like referring to him as a little guy, and like, and even when he's when it flashes back to him on the roof thinking about the incident, he's like, "Yeah, fair enough. I probably should have been fired for that. I was an idiot." You know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, and and then yeah. also too, there's the other thing of like the fact that we see Bruce Lee happily and 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 personably training two of the people in the film we love the most, being Sharon and Jay. And having a great time training them, and they clearly love him. So it's, yeah, I, I, like... I think it. I think it does still have a race issue. I think like the fact that um, the only people of color in them are, are kind of ridiculed to this really extreme, you know, extreme role. And I and I think part that's of that is Hollywood at the time as well. Like Hollywood in '69 wasn't a friendly place place for people of color, and. Mm. You know, yeah, I don't but know. It, but whenever you're returning back to that, you script that or to engage with it, and I, I don't know. I'm going to, I still, I'm not going to be able to be swayed on that point. <laughs> right. Sorry, continue. I'd look, I'd, <laughs> um, but yeah, look, uh, we could talk about this film all night, but I, I just, I adored it. I was moved by it. And yeah, it's, it's a very much a hangout movie. It, it, you know, if you, you sort of look at Tarantino's filmography, it's very much in the sort of Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown kind of vein of hangout films. But yeah, I, I, I just, I, I absolutely adore this film. And who amongst us saw it on 35 mil? Well, this is what I was going I to mention. <laughs> yeah, uh, You did so? I did. So yeah. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is currently screening at all good cinemas, but it's screening on 35mm film at the Astor Theatre uh, until and September 11th. at the Sun Theatre as well. Oh, and at the Sun as well. And that's how Al Pacino wants you to see it. <laughs> you are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. Now for our retro title for this evening, Vim Vendors' 1987 film Wings of Desire. 
In Beautiful Black and White, we saw over Berlin of the mid-1980s, when Germany was still divided into West and still recovering from War II. Two enigmatic gentlemen in black coats listen to, pe- listen to people's innermost thoughts, and- but it's soon revealed that these aren't men at all, but angels. Damiel, played by Bruno Garns, and Cassiel, played by Tosander. Unseen by mere mortals, Damiel and Cassiel are forbidden to interact with Lowe, permitted only to keep a watchful eye over their charges, and give them a gentle touch. But when Damiel falls in love with Marion, a lonely trapeze art, he considers making the leap for celestial being to flesh and blood human, something Cassiel empathises with but will never really try to understand. During this deliberation and in they'll cross paths with Peter Fork, Nick Cave, and a travelling carnival. Flick, did discovering this gem give you wings? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it did. Um, I I loved this. I um, Yeah, I think I just really sunk into it. Um, I kind of watched it in two parts, which is probably not ideal. I just got quite sleepy, a few too many wines, and was like, I should watch this when I'm <laughs> more sober. Um, <laughs> but I, I really loved it. I loved the um, – so it's such a philosophical film, and, mm. it's, and I think that this is going to be a strange compar- compar- comparison, um, but it reminded me a bit of the um, – Oh God, I've forgotten City the name. City of Angels. Of <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that is exactly the film it did not. And I was like, the whole time, I was like, how is this a remake? How did someone watch this and be like, I know? <laughs> anyway, that that is a yeah, that was something playing on my mind. But no, I was thinking of, and I've completely forgotten the name of them. But um, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. Before oh, Sunrise. before Sunrise. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah so like that Georgie. idea of these people wandering around these beautiful oh, spaces and musing on life and love. And I just feel like uh, I know that's a bunch there's a long this is a they're both contemporary examples of it but it just sort of that sort of feel of if you go in with these characters they kind of put forward these interesting thoughts that aren't always answered and there's all these kind of as they walk past people inside in the interiority of these characters that you might not meet again but also their hidden desires and anxieties and they're just really uh, moving and very just beautifully shot. So even when it's not even what's being said, but it's how it's being aided by the camera lighting. Um, there's this wonderful switches between colour and the lens, which apparently created the black and white, created through stocking, right? Oh, wow. There was some crazy feature because I was trying to work out the how they filmed the precise bits and something <laughs> a stocking Through was a involved stocking. I might need to google that for <laughs> something more precise uh, but um yeah I was really really touched by this film I enjoyed it well I think it has a, a new dimension to it since Bruno Gunn's past uh was it just earlier this year yeah it was yeah and a lot of the wider world out there mostly knows him now for being the most memed uh, <laughs> actor probably in history for his part in um downfall as hit in the bunker, <laughs> losing his shit, <laughs> losing his shit, uh, which is constantly given new reworkings. Um, but this is the film that he was really best known for before yeah. that ever happened. <laughs> One of a, a troop of weirdly ponytailed angels wandering. I don't know. Ponytails, ponytails <laughs> and trench coats. Hey, look, it was um, the mid 1980s. Yeah. And also, does um, Nick Cage have a ponytail? And see- I hope so. I'm Maybe we'll do might. that for our next week. I don't know if he had enough hair at the time to have. Well, not, the- yeah, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. sorry, sorry. Yeah. Anywho, <laughs> <laughs> I never saw that remake. I never heard good things. I, I, I'm right not to bother with it. Aren't yeah, you? you are. Yeah, you are. Yeah. Just by, by the soundtrack. Yeah. <laughs> But this this is a gorgeous film. The cinematography is stunning. Everything looks strikingly beautiful, and and there is a real pathos to to watching this. Um, you know, and, and at a time right now when 
even Germany is struggling with um, divisions once more. I mean, here, this is still Berlin, a divided city. This all takes place in, and that's not to be overlooked in, in amongst all of the philosophical dimensions to this film, is that it, its setting is very particular. And that Peter Falk, playing Peter Falk, shooting a film uh, in West Berlin about the, its Nazi past, but it, 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 it's... That city is such a character in its own right. It's a, a, sort of a, a cliched sort of observation that a city or a place is a character, but but Berlin has such a presence and so, and is so overladen with significance. And um, you know, perhaps this isn't it isn't quite as important that it's Berlin as in say a film like Possession, which is my favourite. Berlin is divided city mm-hmm. as metaphor for divisions beyond that in a huge. Well, in that case, a relationship breaking up and some sex beast as well, just off to one side. (laughs) That's Andrzej Zulawski's masterpiece possession, folks. If you've not seen that, everyone needs to see that film at least once and marvel at it. But, uh, yeah, it is still – there's a real melancholy to this this film and part of it is it's – is that setting and thinking, okay, this is only, what, but 35 to 40 years ago, this Berlin, Mm. the uh, the wall was still several years from coming down. It's a sad place, Mm. yeah. I um this was this was my retro desire and I first saw this film in the 90s and the reason that I found I found this film was because I'm a big Nick Cave fan and I was like oh this has got Nick Cave in it I'm going to watch it and oh my god it just blew me away I I still to this day don't think that I've seen a film that is so graceful and so gentle and Cerise what you were saying about Berlin being so important in it, it having such a incredibly gentle film with this backdrop of chaos is I, I've, ne- I've never seen anything like it still this movie really blows me away it's such an inc- um it wasn't what i was expecting when i was like oh but um <laughs> i'm so glad that i did it was the food vendors as well um to discuss these films but yeah i just it's a gorgeous, and I highly enjoy this. And when I was watching it the other night, like the exact same thing happened. I was like, oh, I've had a couple of wines. I better stop now. <laughs> like, what are we doing? Yeah, Destroying this masterpiece with our busy habits. I was like, no, turn I it know. off. I actually, just as a side to the Nick Cave thing, I didn't know that he was in it. So yeah. I was just, and I had a moment when he first appeared. Yeah. Then obviously it's and very clear that it's. We him also in the next have. Um, the late and great Roland S. Howard in his yeah. band crime, but I think it was at that point where the birthday party had recently moved over to Berlin, and Roland S. Howard and Cave had parted ways and started separate bands in this movie. Oh, um, yeah. yeah, and also that scene where um, Marion is just listening to the music. I thought that was so powerful. Mm. You really get a sense of the what effect and what purpose music has in working, feeling connected to. to yeah, said on. on it's stage. also such interesting. Um, I think filmmaking putting that particular kind of music in this film because it doesn't feel like it. Mm. It doesn't feel like mm. um, having that kind of underground sort of crime city solution music playing. It doesn't seem like it should go with really sort of dreamy, um, melancholy film, but it fits in. And Nick Cave kind of plays Cupid. No, you know, in a fashion, he does. Uh, unknowingly. But um, yeah, this is. I only saw this last year as uh, the 4K restoration played at Acme, and it's the first time it ever... I'd, weirdly, I'd watched its sequel, Far Away So Close, a bunch of years ago, sometime in the 90s. But this is, yeah, this is something of a love letter to human beings. Um, and it, it's sort of emerging from a West Germany that was still wrestling with its past and humanity. And it's, it's also kind of... 
touchingly played without ever. Um, it's just, you know, it, it's just this sort of very gorgeous, hopeful, thoughtful film. It does amble a bit. It does have a very dreamy, ambly, languid kind of feel, but, you know, it's all part of it. It's, you know, it, we're, we're looking through the perspective of being time is meaningless. Except uh, there are yearnings to be human, mm-hmm. to actually rid themselves of that and to know what it is again to be a sensuous creature. And that's, I think, why it's so profound and mm-hmm. so moving. Yeah. Yeah, that the thing. Why would you opt to be, yeah. you know, from from being uh, an angel? I like Otto Sander a lot in this. I don't know why he didn't go on to that much. It was like, a ponytail of just <laughs> <laughs> career ruining ponytail. <laughs> the ponytail. It's it's always the damn. Just stay away from it, folks. And so Bruno Gans gets to be Hitler after that ponytail. That's yeah. how it works. Either your career ends yeah. or you're Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> I can't do anything better than that. Wings of Desire is currently available to stream on SBS On Demand and Canopy and also to rent or buy on iTunes, Google Play and YouTube Rentals. Three Triple R. Our final film for this evening is the new film from hereditary director Ari Aster, Midsommar. Receiving news of the worst of family tragedies, psychology student Danny Ardo, played by Florence, is left bereft and distraught, a state which her largely ambivalent boyfriend Christian, Jack Raynor, feels merely obligate. So distant is he that, a year later, Danny only discovers that Christian has booked a trip to Sweden with his fellow anthropology majors Josh, Mark and Pele two weeks before they're due to leave. After an argument, Christian reluctantly invites Danny to... The idea is to visit a remote village in Pele's native land, where his family are due to celebrate a very special midsummer ceremony, one that only occurs... Of course, anthropology students being anthropology students, they're going to pick up chicks. Well, Pele isn't, and now Christian sure as hell isn't. But once they arrive at the commune, it's clear it isn't going to be the summer of expected, uh, as they're quickly given hallucinogenic drugs, seeing strange things, and bearing witness to a particularly brutal ritual. From there, things get very... Cerise. What? Did this have you booking a flight for a mid-year destination of sun, fun, and a shot at winning an elaborate May Queen dance-off? Did it ever. Yeah, this is um, is a very... It's a pretty unusual horror flick in as much as... uh, It's not alone in this, but it it is one of relatively few, which most of the horrors occur in broad daylight. Not just broad daylight, it's it's basically almost 24 hours of daylight there. It's that time of year in Scandinavia where... um, I mean, this is even woven into the plot where all the anthropology students, who you'd think should be on top of this, but they get very confused (laughs) that there is so much daylight. And what do they expect happens when you go to the... Uh, the northernmost parts of the northern hemisphere. It's I'd have thought they'd have done that much homework at least. <laughs> Look, their subject is people, not weather. So yeah, it's okay. Yeah, they're tripping on mushrooms <laughs> time anyway. So. Yeah, that's true. But still, still, uh, they're not very respectful. I mean, yes, I get <laughs> they're it. Really they're, they're anthropology. Yeah, it's the, it's the male of the anthropological uh, student species there, in particular, is just pretty cretinous, poorly behaved, disrespectful and uh, entitled and presumptuous and obnoxious. Um, All of them, really. (laughs) It's hard to feel very much sympathy for any of them. Um, Christian, he of the very uh, over-signified name, uh, (laughs) is, uh, what's the actor's name? Jack Jack Rayner. Yeah, Seth Rogen Light. Is that just me? Oh, that's no, so accurate. I, I kept thinking he was Seth Rogen the whole time. I was oh, like, really? is this Seth Rogen? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's not. Yeah. It's like yeah. a young yeah. Seth Rogen. Wow. Yeah. Weird. I did not yeah. get the Seth Rogen thing at all. Yeah. 
Well, I got it. We all got Everyone it. Everyone got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, no, I really, actually really enjoyed this film. It, it, um, I, I like a film that shows things in broad daylight because it, 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 you can generate a sense of the uncanny by showing everything with crystal clarity. It, it's not just um, the stuff of glimpses of things and, and uh, the little chill down the spine when you think you saw something. It's actually sometimes just showing things in the most seemingly banal setting which is say the sun is out you're in a paddock people are frolicking around it's not actually as it turns out that hard to make things weird and and uneasy mm. to, to generate that atmosphere all you just need is people casually part of you just don't create a little sense of a real universe so all these people in funny little frocks just dancing about quietly in the background hugging one another or just just things that are part of the fabric of of every scene for a while until by degrees, more and more meaning is can be attached to their ritualistic behaviour. Now, it's not just a bit of pageantry, as it turns out, for just to amuse some tourists or just as a, a little tourist attraction. Really, it's um yeah we we learn uh, that yeah, this is a pagan. It's a folk horror. It is a genre. It's just one that's not really had a lot of airing for a long time. And The Wicker Man is probably the most famous film that this sort of fits in with generically. Mm-hmm. But um, this one definitely has its own flavour and its own rituals and own mm. creepiness, um, and I really liked it. I, I, I this is my favourite film of this so far. Oh, yes. oh, oh. <laughs> I will go as far as saying that. I loved this. I loved every second of it. Um, it definitely comes from you know our folk horror. Like you were saying, Cerise sets in with The Wicker Man. Um, we have had a few folk horror entries in oh, yeah, one. Yeah. Um, but I really liked this is certainly not bringing anything new to the table. Um, I did like what Ari Aster added to this. I liked his comment on um, masculinity that came through this. Um, uh, all assholes. <laughs> to say, when, I, I actually didn't mind the, like, the African-American kid. Yeah. I thought he was okay. Uh, when, like, um, the rest are like, mm. When I saw this at the cinema, someone yelled out at the end, be nice to your girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> How how raw is the like the relationship politics yes. in it? Especially at the start, I was like very uncomfortable. Watching yeah, it, that. it's and oh, I, fa- I found that really really authentic. Mm. That kind of it was just stuff where it's like situation before yeah. I've, I've done that. Like um, I I really just liked what this the table. It, like I said, not anything really new or groundbreaking. It was a hell of a ride. It is a lot of fun and for I. Often in about the length of um, runtime. This has got a pretty substantial runtime. I enjoyed all of it. I really did. <laughs> I got so much style inspo from this film. Like, there's a bit where um, the main character, who is the wonderful, what's her name? I've forgotten. Florence Pugh. Oh, she was fantastic so in this. I love her so much. I haven't seen her in anything else. Ah, uh, she was in Lady, Lady Macbeth. Macbeth. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, the she little was... Park Chan Wook's the little okay. drama girl. Mm. Yeah, she was amazing. Oh, and she's, I think, my favorite. And I think it's going to become such a, you know, we we're talking about memes before. I feel like it's going to become the most memed film because there's this wonderful scene in which she's like waddling about in this really heavy cape thing of flowers. And I was like, that is going to be my wedding dress. <laughs> such a cool, such an over-the-top, it's just ridiculous. Anyway, great style inspo in this film. But um, I I really enjoyed this film. Uh, I also was uh, very much swept up in, like, this whole daytime uh, horror. Um, I think that Ari Aster used um, always, you know, I really loved Hereditary his earlier film, and I think he makes great use of sound as horror. Um, for instance, with um, the sound of like, 
it still fills me with dread. <laughs> um, sorry to everyone listening. Uh, but also I think that in Midsummer sound is so effective in like creating this sense of mass hysteria. It's actually mm. like sounds and the mimicking of someone going through terribly, uh, well, the grieving period, grieving process, I suppose, and the way in which like the rest, there's moments in which the hysteria is passed on through people mimicking that very sound. So it's really fascinating how sound is. I do have, um, and it's some, I have one reservation. It's something a friend of mine pointed out after the film. So I did enjoy the film and then straight after um, my friend was like, oh, I clocked out as soon as this happened. And, oh, that's a really good insight. But she was talking about the way in which the Oracle is um, a boy with a disfigured face. He's mm. disabled and referred to only as the disabled one. And... It's interesting how he doesn't actually do anything particularly horrific in the film. I don't think he's involved with any of the murders. He's there during one of the um, orgy scenes, but he it's his face and his disfigurement that becomes a site of horror. And I think that that is really something that you kind of need to work through. It is, um, to use the P word, problematic <laughs> in the sense of the way in which that is just put there and maybe fetishized slightly. There's a lot of close-up on his disfigurement mm-hmm. and it comes in very early in the film. And I, I do agree with my friend's comments and I kind of, once I saw that, I was like, oh, that's, that's a bit of a shame. It's brought, there's attention brought to it as being the result of strategic inbreeding, which yeah. attaches a really weird, uncomfortable uh, yeah, significance absolutely. to it as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and also, um, just as a side note, the way I think that there has already been quite a lot of talk about how the film um, deals with representations of bipolar. Uh, yes, that I found I found that yeah. a bit p-word actually, like the yeah. one that opens the film. Yeah, yeah that that troubled so me a bit. I think that there's a lot of stigma around disability, and so that film probably doesn't help that much in those representations. But Harry Astor is a very young filmmaker, and I'm excited about what he might go on to make. I've loved both Hereditary and Midsummer in different ways. Um, I just I don't know. I got really into. I think the relationship. Um, between the two main characters is maybe a bit too relatable. There's, I, yeah, I, there's I, a real like, like oh, I've been there, sister. Yeah, and there's a real yeah. energy to yeah. um, her, the main character's trajectory that I enjoyed immensely. There was one thing that I also really that I loved from this film was when she is with all the other women in the that just like oh, girl power. Like, yeah, this kind of like <laughs> yeah. just this screaming and support, which is like, mm. oh, that must feel so good. Yeah, I, I thought really that liked. it's interesting because yeah. initially you think it's like she's being taunted and you're like, what the hell? Mm. But then, I don't know, and and so interesting as, um, I don't know, like just the narrative of a young woman experiencing grief, I thought that was really honest representation. There's a lot of moments in this film that play around with reality um, and I think that there's – and that's, that's also – uh, lost for words today. Um, that's conveyed through how they play around with what you're seeing on screen. There's lots of like warping of the image, which mm. I found really fantastic because it's so subtle. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, coupled into like how she's like, navigate the next couple of months, I mm. suppose. Arias. Yeah, I. I'm I've scared, been. I'm scared to hear your thoughts <laughs> on this. Mm. I've been on record as being no fan of Hereditary. I thought it was pretty bad. Um, but. Uh, Tony Collette's great performance aside. I like this more. I, I think this is a better film than Hereditary. 
Um, I think it for a two and a half hour movie, it was actually really boring. Like it was actually kind of the stuff going on. You know, it, it has this real focus on ritual, which is kind of interesting and and. I love the way – I think I agree with you all. I think Florence Pugh's great. And I love the way she's really interestingly blocked in scenes with the guys and in particularly when they meet – and even when they meet the commune, like, they greet everyone else first and then her. Mm. Like, she's always last. She's always kind of separate. She's always And she's always kind of placed in this sort of awkward position. And the way she's regarding them all is just really interesting. I really liked all that stuff. Ara and his um, – Aster and his crew are really good at making small films look big, I think, with Hereditary and this, that, that really uh, is really achieved. Um, and all the daylight horror stuff is, and like the whole concept of, of, of a horror film taking place. In. However, I just, I, I don't know. There's something about the way he makes films. It's, I feel like his films are rooted in deep emotional trauma, but take the piss at every turn. And he spends minutes on end kind of depicting rituals and then building loads of tiny details, but then milks him for cheap laughs. And it's like, he's just got this constant distance. Like he poses like Ingmar Bergman, but then with every other scene kind of pleads with the viewer, please don't take this seriously. I don't mean it. And so it's sort of like this get out of jail free card where it's like, it's either like, it could be a refreshing lack of hubris or it could be a get out of jail free card where he's like, (laughs) if something doesn't work, hey everybody, it was just a gag. I'm just um, fucking with you, you know? Um, Whereas it's, I just feel like he does, I feel like he lacks sincerity as a filmmaker. And it's like, I don't feel like he's really willing to commit. I think the actors commit to the emotions. Mm. I don't think Astor is a filmmaker. And, and it really digs between beneath that surface. What those things. And I liked, yeah, there's some things I did like, like, yeah, particularly that scene you mentioned flick before with the, with the mass, like the mall imitating. Her, and <laughs> oh, yeah. it turned out to be like a group grieving. I, I liked that. But again, that was like a ritual idea. And I really liked that as an idea. I think too, I think Ari Aster's a bit too fond of the sledgehammer shock moment. Oh, I think yeah, that got if, milked a bit. Oh, my God. If there was one more <laughs> shot of a smashed face, just smash cut to a smash face, I'm like, he yeah, was, okay, we get it. He was getting his money's worth for his special <laughs> effects. And he got on that. just saw latex. It was yeah. like, okay, Asta, I get it. You got some latex <laughs> and you want to shock us. And hang. Aren't you a bad guy? Um, yeah, I just, it's the thing. I think, I, I feel like below all of this, you know, this gift of creating atmosphere and, and drawing these amazing performances out of these actors and, and coming up with these intriguing situations that are based on this emotional trauma, I can't help being that beneath it all, he's just kind of a hipster throwing sh- weird shit at the wall and pointing at oh, it and laughing at it. To be fair, hang on, the opening scene when they're driving and it does that whole, I think it's a drone yes, shot, yeah. that is beautiful, right? It goes <laughs> upside cool. down. I was like, very cool. That's the thing. <laughs> the dude does not lack style. Like, his <laughs> films are very stylish. And at least this one, unlike hereditary which just got more and more absurd as it went on this one calls it shot from the jump like there's a there's a mural that comes up mm. immediately that's quite amusing and it's like okay at least now you're kind of you're letting the audience into your process but i just wish wish there was more sense i just and it just kept pushing me away but i did i did prefer this one to hereditary and it is a it's a perfectly diverting time like i, I it's definitely so so hopefully that was no, i wasn't too harsh on itself it's <laughs> all right i did <laughs> <laughs> we're all going to be apologizing to one another after this podcast. we have to go and have a group screaming session together afterwards <laughs> <laughs> Midsummer is currently screening at all good major and independent cinemas. You've been listening to Plato's Cave on Triple R with Sally Christie, Flickford, Cerise Howard, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. Before I, and on tonight's show, we discussed uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, now screening in Augmas and at the Astor Theatre and the Sun Theatre on 35mm film. Our retro title, Wings of Desire, now available to stream on SBS On Demand and Canopy and to rent or buy on iTunes Rentals. 
and Midsommar now scoring, screening in all good cinemas. You can, you've got to do that accent. I thought you were going to do it for the rest of it. <laughs> you can listen back to the show. No. The show within half an hour and triple R on demand or check out the songs we played on the Plato's Cave page at triplear.org.au now. Next week in the cave, we'll dig into Jennifer Kent's The Nightingale, Matteo Garone's uh, crime drama Dogman and a surprise retro title because I haven't thought of one yet. A huge thank you, thank you to Faith Everard for editing the Plato's Cave podcast, to Killer Carl Chapman for panelling the show and to Lisa Kovac for producing our show. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.